You are listening to the weekly newsletter of the Christian Study Center of Gainesville. This week, we reflect on what it means to live in a perpetual condition of information overload. Perhaps to a greater degree than ever before, we are tempted to stay current with the unceasing stream of information inundating us from countless sources. Never before have we had access to so much information, and rarely has it seemed so important for us to remain well-informed. The imperative to stay informed is driven in part by the novelty of our situation and the older ideals of democratic citizenship. Unfortunately, the means by which we now seek to stay well informed may defeat these very ideals by undermining our capacity to think. In times like these, social media demands something of us, but it is not thought. It demands a reaction, one that is swift, emotionally charged and in keeping with the affective tenor of the platform. In many respects, this entails not only an absence of thought, but conditions that are overtly hostile to thought. Even apart from crisis, controversies, and tragedies, the effect of our digital media ecosystem is consistent. The focus is inexorably on the fleeting present. The past has no hold, and the future does not come into play. Our time is now, our place is everywhere. Of course, social media has only heightened a tendency critics have noted since at least Kierkegaard's time. To be well-informed, meaning up with current events, undermines the possibility of serious thinking, mature emotional responses, sound judgment, and wise action. It is important to note, however, that this is not merely a problem of information overload, If it were only information we were dealing with, then we might be better able to recognize the nature of the problem and correct it. It is also an emotional overload problem. It is the emotional register of digital media that accounts for the Pavlovian alacrity with which we attend to our devices and the information flows for which they are a portal. These devices and platforms then become, in effect, Skinner boxes we willingly inhabit that condition our cognitive and emotional lives. Twitter says, feel this. We say, how intensely. Social media never invites us to step away, to think and reflect, to remain silent, to refuse a response for now or even indefinitely. Under these circumstances, there is no place for thought. For the sake of the world, though, we must, at least for a time, take leave of the world, especially the world mediated to us by social media. We must, in other words, by deliberate action, make a place for thought. Hannah Arendt understood that an incapacity to think was a serious threat to our society. Arendt believed that thinking was somehow intimately related to our moral judgment and that the inability to think was a gateway to grave evils. Of course, it was a peculiar kind of thinking that Arendt had in mind, thinking, one might say, for thinking's sake, or thinking that was not simply a variety of problem-solving. Jennifer Stitt, for example, has drawn on Arendt to argue for the importance of solitude for thought, and thought for conscience, and conscience for politics. As Stitt notes, Arendt believed that living together with others begins with living together with oneself, Here is how Stitt concluded her reflections. Arendt reminds us, if we lose our capacity for solitude, our ability to be alone with ourselves, then we lose our very ability to think. 
We risk getting caught up in the crowd. We risk being swept away, as she put it, by what everybody else does and believes in. No longer able, in the cage of thoughtless conformity, to distinguish right from wrong, beautiful from ugly. Solitude is not only a state of mind essential to the development of an individual's consciousness and conscience, but also a practice that prepares one for participation in social and political life. Solitude, then, is at least one practice that can help us create a place for thought. Paradoxically, in a connected world, it is challenging to find either solitude or companionship. If we submit to a regime of constant connectivity, we end up with hybrid versions of both, versions which fail to yield the full satisfactions of either. We would do well, too, to consider W.H. Auden's admonition about the desire for knowledge. We are quite prepared to admit, Auden wrote, that while food and sex are good in themselves and uncontrolled pursuit of either is not, but it is difficult for us to believe that intellectual curiosity is a desire like any other, and to recognize that correct knowledge and truth are not identical. To apply a categorical imperative to knowing so that instead of asking, what can I know, we ask, what at this moment am I meant to know? To entertain the possibility that the only knowledge which can be true for us is the knowledge that we can live up to, that seems to all of us crazy and almost immoral. Auden is right. In a world of information overload, we need the capacity to recognize the difference between what I can know and what I ought to know. Crazy or immoral as it may strike modern ears, it may be one of the most important truths we need in order to navigate the torrents of information that daily threaten to overwhelm us and to navigate these torrents wisely and faithfully.